Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today on what is our 250th episode of Free Thoughts is Adam Bates, Policy Counsel at the International Refugee Assistance Project. Welcome back to Free Thoughts. Yeah, hi. What is the International Refugee Assistance Project? Uh, Sure. So it was originally founded in 2008 as the um, Iraqi Refugee Assistance Project. It was um, five students at Yale Law School, uh, including Becca Heller, who is our current um, director, uh, just saw that there was a need. um, That was at the height of the Iraq War. Uh, saw that there was a need for legal services for uh, people who are applying for refugee status to the United States. And the, the provision of direct legal services to this community basically uh, just didn't exist at that time. So um, it was really her vision to to create a, a law firm, essentially, and people who could leverage legal expertise to help refugees uh, escape the situations they're in. So I believe in about 2015, it was rebranded as the International Refugee Assistance Project, and their uh, their mandate grew because they were representing refugees, not just from Iraq, but from all over the world. Um, so, so yeah, that's what we that's what we do. We provide direct legal services to refugee applicants. We litigate. Um, we also have uh, a lot of pro bono chapters, so law firms who who help us do our work. And we have about 29 or 30 law student chapters. So we, we outsource a lot of work to, to law students. So we, we actually do a lot more work than, uh, than the, the number of people who actually work there would suggest. Does this, this is only people coming to America. I, mean, I just assume your expertise is in American refugee law, but does it get involved with situations such as the Syrian refugees going over to Europe? Uh, we primarily focus on the United States because that's where the expertise uh, is. Um, we have field offices in uh, Amman, Jordan, and Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, sometimes we will um, work with people. We have a Canadian law law school, a Canadian law student chapter. Uh, so on occasion, we may help uh, people navigate the, the Canadian process, but we usually would defer to Canadian lawyers on that. Um, so yes, by and large, um, this is focused on helping refugee applicants get to the United States. But uh, if the situation arises, we are trying to get them to any uh, safe third country. How did you get involved? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting story. So I was actually working at Cato. Uh, I've, I started at IRAP in October of last year, so I've been there about um, nine months now. Uh, for the three years prior to that, I was doing criminal justice policy uh, here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and so, I mean, basically what happened was the the election happened, uh, and then President Trump instituted the, the Muslim ban uh, in his first week in office. Um, I was just motivated by by what I saw going on in the airports, by what was happening, uh, what I thought was on the basis of people's religion or their nationality or their ethnicity. So um, I just decided that I I wanted to start working on refugee issues. So um, I knew that IRAP was responsible for a lot of that organization that people may remember from the airports where lawyers were showing up to Dulles and Reagan and, uh, you know, trying to help get people off the planes because the – the Muslim ban came down at like 4.20 on a Friday afternoon, and it went into effect immediately. So there were people in the air who, when they landed, uh, the husband would be a U.S. citizen and his wife wouldn't be a citizen. So they were turning the wife around and sending her back to Syria or sending her back to Iran. Uh, and the husband, you know, they were calling people and asking, you know, what can I do? They're deporting my wife back to Syria. Uh, and I was just uh, offended. I would say I, I found reservoirs of, of patriotism I didn't know I had. And I thought that this um, 
this isn't this can't be what this country's about this can't be something and i just felt that as as a libertarian as a lawyer uh, as somebody with some uh background in middle east studies and the arabic language uh i just felt that um that this was the this was the thing for me to do at that time uh during while that policy was ongoing i thought i really want to help this this refugee issue what does it take to be a refugee uh, to the united states in a general sense well, so I, I mean, in the specific in the specific legal context, yeah, the refugee, legal test could you sure. meet to be a refugee. Uh, so, a refugee is a person. Typically, there are, of course, there are exceptions to this, but typically, a refugee is somebody who is not in their um, country of residence. They're not in their their home country. Uh, they're unwilling or unable to return to their home country because of a well-founded fear of persecution uh, based on race, ethnicity, religion, uh, political opinion, social group, uh, something like that. So it's a, I mean, it's a pretty objective test, but at the same time, you can see how that might apply to a lot of people. So um, I think currently there are roughly 20 million, um, according to UNHCR, which is the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, there are about 20 million uh, refugees in the world, with about five million more Palestinians who are considered refugees, um, and so that's just people who meet that definition. Um, there are also uh, people who are asylum seekers. So those are people who have arrived in a country like the United States and uh, claim that they can't be sent back to their country for largely the same reasons for for f- well-founded fear of persecution. Uh, and then there are what we call internally displaced people. Um, these are people who are still in their home country, but they've had to leave where they were from for some reason, usually internal persecution. Um, so those people do not count as refugees uh, under the UN definition. So the group of people that we work with typically are people who are outside their home country. They're not they're looking for a safe third country and they can't go back to their home country. Does that persecution requirement then mean that? Someone who say is just there's a civil war going on and you happen to be caught in the middle of it. So you're not being targeted for any of the the various criteria that you listed, but it simply is just it's too dangerous to remain there because you could get a bomb dropped on you at any time. And so you fled. They don't. That doesn't count as refugee? Well, there are, as I mentioned, that, that was the general definition of refugee. Um, there are also exceptions to this. In U.S. law, there are things called like temporary protected status, which you may have heard of, which are um, people who are in the United States, something happens. Now, this the something could be a broader a, a broader category than what I mentioned earlier. So it could be a, a natural disaster. It could be uh, the Syrian civil war breaks out, and you're in the United States, and you are given a temporary protected status. Um, of course, the, the problem there, if you come in as a refugee, um, after a year, you can apply to have an adjustment of status to a permanent resident. And then, you you know, uh, four years after that, you can apply to become a citizen. It's the same as if you had immigrated to the U.S. Temporary protected status is temporary. And these people exist in this kind of limbo. Um, the government has to reauthorize or redesignate that their particular uh, crisis, um, or else they can be uh, sent out of the country. And that's happened a couple times under this administration, where there are concerns about people who've been in the U.S. and they're they're under temporary protected status, but they're concerned about losing that status and potentially being being deported. So there are um, even for people who don't qualify technically as refugees, there are. Uh, humanitarian parole and temporary protected status. There are ways for them to to be kept in the country if uh, the administration is amenable to those. Well, that was uh, I think the story was the Hondurans, the forty thousand Hondurans who had temporary protected status for twenty years mm-hmm. or something, and then they just 
took it away, which seems to me to be vicious is the only real word I can think of. What I mean, I don't think they were causing any huge problems. I don't think there were a bunch of stories of Hunter and crime sprees. Um, I might be wrong about that, but uh, just to be like, no, nah, you guys got to go home. I guess it kind after of, twenty years, it kind of shows here. something about the way this administration thinks of people living in this country who aren't. American citizens. I, I think so. I mean, I, I think the answer you would get is temporary is meant to be temporary. And it's this very like formulaic, uh, instead of considering the broader humanitarian picture or the broader philosophical issues at stake, um, you know, it's really drawing right down into the, the name itself and saying, well, temporary means temporary. Um, they've been here 20 years. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm not familiar with any big hunter and crime spree. Um, so, yes, I mean, this administration has has obviously taken uh, a line on um, people who are not citizens, making it harder to come to the United States, making it harder to be a citizen. Um, so, yes, this is I, I think anybody who works in the, in the space I work in would tell you that this is this is not a great time uh, for refugee law in the U.S. or or in the world, really. So uh, I like I like finding tough battles. You know, that's part I think that's part of being a libertarian is, is finding these hard battles and and fighting them. But, yeah. Yes, this this is a very trying time um, for refugee rights and immigration rights more broadly. What does fighting those battles look like specifically for you? So what do you do in your day job with IRAP? Sure. So one of the things that IRAP really prides itself on, uh, it's a very young organization, uh, both in terms of how long it's existed and in terms of how old the people are who work there. So it's a lot of young lawyers who are who are energetic and interested and fired up about this issue. Um, there are, people are very interested in doing the various things that we do at IRAP. So we have a the, – the, the bulk of our work is uh, our legal department. So those are people who are providing direct legal services to refugee applicants. They're helping them fill out the paperwork. They're helping them file appeals. Um, they're walking them through the laborious process of, of becoming a refugee. Uh, we also have a litigation department. Uh, and what litigation does basically is sue the government. Um, so uh, we sued over the Muslim ban – um, we lost in the Supreme Court. We still have. So the Muslim ban was actually bifurcated into the travel ban and then the refugee ban. Um, we're still litigating the, the, the refugee aspect of the Muslim ban. But um, as everyone knows, uh, the travel ban was resolved by the Supreme Court uh, in favor of the administration. Uh, we're also suing about various other uh, refugee issues. Uh, the, there was a program for uh, unaccompanied children from Central America called the Central American Minors Program. Was this the thing that people were freaking out about? In, during the Obama administration when the, they were saying that the, the kids are coming north and everyone started freaking out about it. Right. And they, I'm from Oklahoma. They had they were using an army base in Oklahoma to bust the kids there. And uh, and yes, and this was yes, people probably remember during the Obama administration, the, the unaccompanied minor crisis at the border. Uh, but so a lot of these were kids who were fleeing drug violence in uh, in Central America. Uh, Which were, was, you know, coincidentally caused by our prohibitionary laws, but never we'll leave that on the side there. <laughs> well, I mean, it, when you deal with refugee issues and when you talk to people about where, where, if at all, the obligation to take in refugees comes from, uh, I think that's a worthwhile point to make is that especially, I mean, you may think that we have a general obligation to, to provide sanctuary and refuge to people. Uh, but even if you don't, uh, the situations where we can draw direct lines between U.S. government policies and the existence of the refugee crisis in the first place, you know, maybe we have uh, a bit more of an obligation there. But so, yes, this was a program to basically provide humanitarian parole 
which is, again, this is one of these kind of executive processes to, um, to get people into the country. Um, the Central American Miners Program was a way for those kids to be able to stay in the U.S. Uh, when President Trump got elected, he, um, without a lot of fanfare, or without telling anybody, just basically canceled that program. Um, without giving any kind of justification, just we're not doing this anymore. Um, so we're litigating that issue. Uh, we're litigating on behalf of, there's a program called the Lautenberg Program, which um, if people were around in the 80s and uh, early 90s, uh, they may remember the Lautenberg Program was originally established to help uh, Jews fleeing the Soviet Union. Uh, so a lot of our, a lot of the history of U.S. refugee law is helping people fleeing communism, whether from Vietnam, whether from Russia, uh, Cuba, for instance. We, we've always had that sense that people living under communist government should be able to find a home in the U.S. Uh, but so the Lautenberg program, since there aren't a lot of Jews fleeing the Soviet Union anymore, uh, the, the bulk of that program now is helping uh, people who are being persecuted in Iran uh, get to the U.S. So mostly religious persecution, uh, Christians, Zoroastrians. Uh, so the way that program works, because the U.S. doesn't have any official relationship with the government of Iran, uh, people in the Lautenberg program uh, apply, and then they're they're um, approved to go to Austria. And the Austrian government actually manages this program from Vienna. Uh, up until the uh, President Trump was elected, once those Iranians got to Vienna and went through the rest of the, the vetting and all of that, um, the admission rate to the U.S. was something like 99.9%. I mean, for all intents and purposes, once you were in Vienna, you were coming to the U.S. Um, President Trump... Uh, since President Trump was elected, that has dropped to about zero. Uh, and so uh, you may have seen some articles from Reuters or somewhere else talking about um, dozens or hundreds of Iranians who are stranded in Austria. The Austrian government didn't promise to take these. You know, it, it was a temporary situation. Um, so we're also litigating on behalf of, of, of those people because the, the, the government is obligated by statute to um, inform them to the greatest extent uh, practicable why – uh, they were denied. And in every one of these cases, at least the, the cases that I'm familiar with, uh, the response from the government was for discretionary reasons, period. Uh, and how, so how appealable is that? Uh, is that kind of – you kind of stuck after that? Well, so we actually got class action status recently. So uh, we're representing the entire class uh, because what will happen sometimes is if you're representing two or three people, uh, the government may move those – two or three people through, and then you've mooted, you've mooted the case. You can't proceed to the issue because your clients are no longer. Uh, but so we've been granted class status. We won uh, partial summary judgment on the issue of uh, the government having to provide notice uh, about uh, at least a, a better explanation for why these people were denied. But in terms of, of where that's going, uh, I can't tell you. I, I, I uh, our third department is our policy department, which is where I work. So I, I have a tangential uh, relationship with our litigation wings and our legal departments, but the bulk of my work is in our policy department. So um, I have a handful of clients myself. Uh, everyone, everyone, every lawyer who comes to work at IRAP will do some client work just so they understand uh, the process. And that's been very valuable for me because I wasn't coming here from a position of refugee uh, law. Uh, but so I have a handful of clients that I work with um, I also manage our student policy chapter. So insofar as our um, our law school student groups are doing policy work, uh, they're coordinating, coordinating that with me. Uh, and then I do a lot of our D.C. work. So IRAP is based in New York. 
I, I am here in D.C. I'm based here in D.C. and I do a lot of our policy work on the Hill um, trying to, you know, persuade the administration, persuade Congress to uh, to protect the refugee program that we have and uh, expand it at po- as, if possible. But as we've discussed, uh, this is a very tough time for that kind of policy work. So a lot of that work now is um, just trying to ensure the program that already exists can uh, can keep going. Can you tell us a bit about those clients that you have? Like is what kinds of situations do they find themselves in what specifically are you doing to help them well i mean so for for confidentiality reasons i i and i will say that um yeah, because and as I said about who these refugees are, it's not just the you know the general lawyer uh, confidentiality um, issue. It's that um, I mean our cl- refugee clients almost by definition are facing some kind of threat. So it's it's really important not to get into too many specifics. Uh, but I mean just by the fact that they're refu- they're applying to be refugees, um, they've generally fled their home country for some reason. They have some well established threat. Uh, to their life, and they need a safe harbor in a third country. They're not safe where they are. Um, so you can you can imagine you can imagine the kind of conditions that that these people are living in. You can imagine um, the kind of things that must be going through their head. They they've uprooted their entire lives. Um, they're living in a foreign country from where they were born. They're trying to get uh, to a country, and then they're being faced um, with all the the bureaucratic hurdles that go along with being a refugee. Uh, and now um, a U.S. administration that is overtly hostile to to the idea of refugees uh and by extension uh the US administration by that hostility is kind of dragging the entire uh international refugee apparatus down with it so um i mean insofar as i said this is a bad time to be doing refugee policy it's immeasurably worse time to be a refugee and it just happens to be one of the worst refugee crises since uh, since World War II. Uh, as I said, there are roughly, uh, including the Palestinians, there are roughly 24 to 25 million people who are in this position. And I mean, maybe 1% of them, uh, according to the UN, are going to get resettled uh, in a year. So that's, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible situation. Uh, and that's, so yeah, without getting into too many specifics about what our clients are dealing with, um, that kind of set lays the groundwork. Where do they while they're waiting for their appeal and because and, uh, they, they present themselves at the border or they come in on a flight and then they do they cl- claim refugee status and then they have to go through the process of getting paperwork and, and showing that they deserve refugee status? Is that kind of how it works or do they do it before they come into the border? So what you've just described are basically asylum seekers. Asylum, okay. So, the, I mean, it's easy to get – it's it's fun to think why these things are called different things, but well, I guess asylum has that old thing of like going running into a church and <laughs> right. yelling asylum or something like that, right? Um, so, but I see. So refugees there there went to the embassy or something in. Kabul or something and applied for refugee status. So that's so yeah. Just to clarify, if they're in the United States and they say you can't send me out because of I, I fear, then that person is an asylum seeker, and we have a different process for uh, asylum adjudication. So um, just because that's a common a common confusion. So our our clients, refugees, are people who are physically located outside the United States, and the way this typically works, you can go to an embassy and 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 try to register as a refugee. The way it normally works is to present yourself to the UNHCR. And then the UNHCR does their own vetting of, of your story. 
and you receive a, a refugee status determination that says you, according to the United Nations, you are a refugee. Uh, and then the UN goes through the process of trying to find a, they prioritize all the people who have been designated as refugees. Uh, and then they try to find willing countries to accept uh, these people. In the U.S. context, once the UNHCR has uh, referred them to the U.S., then the U.S. Refugee uh, Admission Program, uh, U.S. RAP, starts all over. They basically start with, the, you know, the information gathering, the interviews, the vetting, the security checks. Um, the U.S. doesn't just take the U.N.'s word for these things. So um, by the time by the time a refugee is referred from UNHCR to the U.S. and then is granted approval and arrives in the U.S., um, that person has been through immense vetting. They're, they're the best box checkers and, and paperwork people in the world uh, just because of how laborious this process is. And then if you're not one of the lucky few um, who is resettled uh, or, or they can't find a country or you're inadmissible to the country, um, a lot of those people are in refugee camps or they're, they're, in, those third, they're in those second countries where they're still trying to get out and and again, their lives are kind of on hold. They can't go home. They're not permanently settled. They're just uh, there. What does it look like to present yourself to the UNHCR? Like, so let's say I'm I'm in Syria. I'm a Syrian citizen, and I think that I am capable of claiming refugee status. Do I? Is there just like is there some building that I walk over to? Do I have to hop on a flight and manage to fly somewhere? Um, so I haven't seen this firsthand yet. Uh, hopefully in the next year I'll get – as I said, we have field offices in Jordan and Lebanon. Um, so hopefully I'll get to go see this for myself in the next year. So I don't want to say anything you know, out of line here. But generally the way this works is you flee you, – you have to leave the country that you're currently in. And obviously if it's an active war zone, uh, there are you – know, UNHCR and the U.S. government may not even be doing interviews in that country. Uh, but so you would normally leave to a, a, a second country. So so many uh, – the biggest countries in terms of – currently housing refugees, not resettling because they're not there permanently, um, but Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Pakistan. Uh, so Afghanistan and Syria are producing, uh, I mean, as people know, are producing a lot of refugees. So those neighboring countries, Turkey, uh, have millions of Syrians or Afghans living in those countries. Who just fled across the border. Who, yeah, who, who came across the border uh, when the war broke out and they're um, and so at that point, that's where you would present yourself to the UN and you would say, I'm a refugee from Syria. I'm a refugee from Afghanistan. Here's, and then you, that's where you would start with the, the information gathering and, and the, the interview processes. So, uh, yeah, when we talk about resettlement to the U.S. or the U.S. being the largest resettlement country, which has been true um, for the entire history until this year, the U.S. Not only has the U.S. been the, the largest resettlement country, until this year, the U.S. has always resettled more refugees than the rest of the world combined. Uh, 2017 was the first time that didn't happen. Um, but so, but so when that's resettlement countries, when we talk about countries that are housing these people, um, I think something like between 17 and 23 percent of the population of Lebanon right now are refugees. I mean, just massive, massive um, refugee movements to these countries. Isn't there a different problem with refugees than sort of quote unquote voluntary immigration where I, I tell people all the time that the reason immigration works so well is because the person who leaves a country voluntarily, like the person leaving Iran, not as a refugee, but saying, I just want to live in the United States is not an average Iranian. I think that's the biggest mistake. They say, oh, well, he's just an average Iranian. No, he wants to leave Iran and uproot his life or her life and 
learn a new language, all these things that, that mean that they really care about moving. But if you're being pushed out of a country, then you're not getting the same caliber, let's so to speak, of people as people who are voluntarily uprooting their lives. And so you could have a bunch of problematic people there who are refugees, but ultimately may not really, they would rather be back in their country that's a war-torn mess, and they don't really want to be in America. So they're not actually the people that, that I, I don't, I want immigrants, but I'm not necessarily would prioritize people who don't want to be in America as the immigrants I would take. And that would seem to be a problem you would have with refugees. You mean the problem of having refugees end up in America who don't actually want to well, be here? Well, they would rather they, – they left a place because it was so inhospitable and they said, OK, I'll go to America. So maybe they're less likely to assimilate because yeah, they didn't exactly. come here out of embrace American assimilate. values or – that sort of thing. Sure. So I think – I mean that's a concern that people have. But I, I mean I think these are um, empirical questions, right? And these are, these are issues um, that would show up in the data in terms of, in terms of crime, in terms of uh, economic uh, uh, behavior. And I think we, we just don't see that. And uh, I mean IRAP is not really um, – Unlike when I worked at Cato, we, we, you know, we're not a research institution. We use a lot of, of outside research, and some of the research, a lot of the research that, that I use is research from the Cato Institute, um, from Alex Nauresta and David Beer here at Cato. Uh, and I mean, I think they've done a, a phenomenal job of empirically showing um, the the the. The, the criminal uh, data, the, the terrorism data, the security data that just shows that um, not only are, are these people not threats, not only are they not criminals, but they're, they're more law-abiding than, than the native-born American citizens. So, I mean, I think that's something that's, you know, and it's an interesting question to think of is, you know, a lot of uh, some immigrants come here because, you know, they in their heart, they, they think I want to be an American and all of that. Um, but how how to compare that against a person who is fleeing a war torn country and they're fleeing for their lives and they're worried about their family safety? Um, what does that person think when they get to somewhere where finally, for the first for a lot of these people, for the first time in years and years, um, they're safe and they have a home and they have a life and they have a job? Um, so the stuff I, you we take for granted, right, like right. you so, can Netflix and chill tonight. It's fine. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that too would be a very powerful uh, a, a very powerful force in people being. Uh, happy with with the situation they're in, and I think if if that weren't the case, um, then we would see it in the data. We would we would see that there was a problem here, and, and we just don't. But along those lines, you mentioned there are, what twenty five million people. Is that what you said? Currently in the world, in the world, seeking refugee status or seeking to be uh, relocated. We can't just let them all in. I mean, we can't. We couldn't just say, okay, all twenty five million can come here. Because it's even if they're not even if they're not higher crime rate than the average American, that still is that's an awful lot of people. So how do we how many is enough and how do we decide which of those 25 million it makes sense to take on? So I again, I feel like that's an empirical question and there probably is some science out there about um, the number of people that are given land mass and, and resources and all of that. Um, but I, I would say the issue here is that the, the numbers we're actually working with are such an infinitesimal part of that that I mean that's really just an academic discussion. You know, um, over the – since the – so the Refugee Act of 1980 um, cr basically created created our legal the legal framework that we use in the US for refugees today um, that 
authorizes the president every year to make a determination of how many refugees, a ref, basically a refugee uh, cap for what uh, the president anticipates will be taking in refugees. Um, over the course of that, so it's 2018, over the 38 years of, of this program, the, the average refugee cap uh, has been about 95,000. Um, whatever that that higher number is, whether it's twenty five million, whether it's a, whatever that number is, it's higher than it's higher than ninety five thousand. Uh, so that's our historical average. Uh, when President Trump made his first determination in two thousand seventeen, um, he set a forty five thousand refugee cap, which is the lowest cap in the history of since in that thirty eight years. Uh, and I checked right before I came over here um, in terms of actual. So that's the cap. That's I mean it's generally treated as as a target. That's usually what we would anticipate the number is going to be. Uh, but uh, right now, we're almost to the end of the fiscal year. Um, we have resettled something like 16,200 refugees. So we're not even on pace to hit half of that historically low cap. Um, so it's it's almost, I, I don't want to say it's funny, but uh, to think about having a situation where we're talking about how many refugees would it take before we were, we just can't take any more refugees. We're so far away from that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but it's a lot more. Uh, certainly, the United States has the capacity to absorb uh, a lot more people. And I know, again, to, to refer to your colleague, Alex Nauresta, he's done great work, for instance, on the Mariel boat lift in Cuba, when you, you did have these huge numbers of people showing up in a very short time frame. And it turns out it's not that bad. The economic benefits are, in fact, positive. Or just fracking in North Dakota. Or just, <laughs> maybe just suddenly 10,000 people came into town and, and into a thousand person town. And I mean, this is, fracking. A, this is a big, this is a big country. We ha- It's a very big, sparsely populated country. So again, I'm not an expert in uh, population dynamics, but um, I, I, I don't think that's a concern that people really need to be worried about. I'd like to ask you about your history even before Cato, because there's a there's a Facebook post that you wrote on 9-11 um, three or four years ago that described what 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 you were doing on 9-11 and sort of the path you went through to get here. And I've often shared it with people. And I think it's a great story of how you, you know, eventually you couldn't even stand on the sidelines anymore insofar as Cato standing on the sidelines and it doesn't really get your hands dirty with helping real people out in that sense. Um, so what, what, what is that kind of path in the, in the, at least in the abridged sense? Okay. So, so yeah, first I should say, this is obviously me speaking and not, and not IRAP here, but my own. Um, but so, yeah, I, I grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, I grew up in a, I was born in Texas, I have to say, genetically a Texan. I grew up in Oklahoma, uh, but you know, a, a vaguely you know Republican, mainstream Republican household. Uh, I mean, we it, we weren't socially conservative, but we weren't Democrats because they you know taxes and whatever. Uh, so a, I mean, after nine eleven happened, um, you know, my perception of the world at that point was um, the United States is is good and right. I was an exceptionalist. The United States is good and right, and a beacon on the hill. Uh, and we were minding our own business, and then these people came and did this horrible thing. So um, that really set me on the path. That's when I g- got really interested in learning Arabic. That's when I got interested in doing Middle East studies. I mean, at that time, the the idea would have been to to go work for the government uh, and and fight the bad guys. Uh, but it was really 
through that process and through learning about the history of the U.S. government's behavior in the world, uh, through meeting Muslims for the first time and actually talking to people who knew so much more about these issues. Uh, and it was really learning about the U.S. history in Afghanistan. So I, uh, not to date myself, but I graduated high school. It was 2003. Uh, so that was right in the, the, the Iraq war had just started and we'd been in Afghanistan. Um, so that's the, that's the backdrop of when I'm learning this stuff. And it was really when I learned about the history of the U.S. and Afghanistan and then actually interned at the Cato Institute doing foreign policy um, that, that that kind of fell apart for me. Um, so that was the point where I decided that I – yeah, I, I really bought into libertarianism and this idea of universal rights, uh, universal individual rights uh, and that – I mean basically the fundamental libertarian precept that people are people and, and the equality under law uh, as a universal idea so that – um, a person born in Juarez and a person born a mile away in El Paso have the same rights. They have the same rights from the same source and they need to be respected. Or a person in uh, 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 Democratic Republic of Congo that needs – that is is fleeing a war. Um, so, so yeah, that's what, that's what led me to Cato in the first place. That's what created my interest in civil liberties. And then as I said earlier, um, when the Muslim ban happened uh, – that's what really kind of set me off to think this is not – this is – insofar as I, I think America exists as an aspiration and we have these, these liberal ideas uh, of what America should be, um, it was just offensive to me. And that's where I, I just thought that I don't want to be writing policy papers, not to – not to – present company, you know, <laughs> but uh, that I wanted to get out and help people. And I thought I had the skill set to actually to actually do that and, and work in the field and represent clients. And so – and that's why I'm here. So, yeah, I, I – it, it was a long path and a circuitous route to this, but, uh, but so yeah. would, would like eighteen year old Adam call call you a, a liberal, like liberal wimp who doesn't properly appreciate America's exceptionalism? Yes, and if I'm glad that Facebook didn't exist when I was sixteen <laughs> or, or you know fifteen or sixteen years old. Uh, but I mean that's I mean that's that's part of, of of growing up and getting out of your you know your town in Oklahoma uh, and and meeting new people and and yeah so. Um, I, I, I'm more worried about what 32-year-old Adam thinks about what 18-year-old Adam thought. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's how I ended up here. So, so for, your, for your years at Cato, you did criminal justice. Um, are there similarities? I mean, when a lot of the work you do in criminal justice is you know, we're concerned about the way that this, this government apparatus kind of uses its power directed against the powerless and underprivileged. Frequently, and the, the way that government kind of grinds down these people who don't have a way out from under its boot. So, are there? Did the work there help you? Are there similarities or parallels now moving into the way that the state interfaces with these these refugees who are themselves like pretty powerless people? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I do I do think there are similarities, and I, I find myself calling on a lot of uh, my experience doing uh, criminal justice policy and my and my study of that. I mean, I, I think all of the things that we point out 
uh, and that I worked on when I was here in the all the the institutional issues in the criminal justice system about access to justice, um, access to counsel, due process rights, things like that. This refugee community, our refugee system is what happens when those even those things, even when those imperfect institutions just simply don't exist. I mean, these people generally they don't get to see a judge. Uh, They're not entitled to counsel when they when they do their interviews. Um, They're not entitled to counsel at all unless they can find uh, unless they can find they can afford counsel or they have somebody like IRAP who represents them uh, for free. and on top of that, these are people who, like, to a to a person, are fleeing. They they had to pick up their life. Their you know their their entire experience is is um, uncertain. They're they they they're not secure in terms of of their personal security, in terms of their personal safety. Um, they can't go home. I mean, these are people who are among the world's most vulnerable people. And behind them, you know, they have arrayed uh, uh, the forces of authoritarianism or uh, religious extremism. And in front of them, they have uh, the entire bureaucracy of the U.S. government and uh, an administration that is overtly hostile to them. So I think um, in terms of, you know, being a libertarian and being concerned about individual liberty, um, I, there's no there's no fight that's more worth fighting to me than that uh, in terms of what libertarians say we care about uh, and the issues that we want to protect people from um, people who are in a refugee situation are are right at the heart of that I mean they have um, they're kind of sandwiched often between two governments like two crappy government they're like getting, most of us only have to deal with one crappy government but you have one at your back and one in front of you you're sitting in the middle of there right and you're you know you're interacting with with the United Nations which is this gigantic sprawling uh, apparatus you're in a third you're in a second country then you're dealing with that government you're trying to you know present yourself to a third government uh, in terms of protecting people from from government uh, <laughs> that's yeah. about as much as you can get yes yeah. so you you giving your Oklahoma I have, I have a lot of experience with Oklahoma my parents are from there, given your uh, Oklahoma background and sort of Oklahoma Republican, uh, I imagine you could speak at least speak fluent Oklahoma Republican to some extent. You know, at least ape it. Uh, what what has changed in in the Republican attitude? Do you think over the last few years toward people like refugees and immigrants? Yeah, I mean, it it has. It's it's. I rarely feel that I'm shocked by anything anymore, but it is. It, it's pretty shocking, just in terms of. Um, as I, I think I alluded to earlier, uh, for the longest time in the so, – so, I mean, most of our refugee law came into being after World War II. That was the big, um, you know, idea that we need – internationally, we need some way to deal with, with these kinds of things. Uh, but from the end of, the, of World War II, so during the Cold War uh, – the overwhelming majority of refugees who came to the U.S. were fleeing communism. Now, there are some politics involved in that. You know, the U.S. would look uh, – the U.S. didn't look as kindly on refugee applications from friendly governments. Uh, there's a little politics there. Uh, but, I mean, for for the most part, it was generally understood in America, you know, left, right, whatever, uh, that we had an obligation – and that it was a good thing. It was a net benefit to the United States, in addition to being a net benefit to the refugees, um, for people not to be living under those kind of regimes, for those regimes not to be able to benefit um, from the, the resources uh, and, and productivity of those people. And that you can you can see that in the Republican Party for decades. You can go back and watch um, Ronald Reagan and, and George H.W. Bush uh, basically have this fight over who's more supportive of, of immigrants. Um, so I think... 
to see it now where we've basically just abandoned the idea that um, that a that we have an obligation to people who are who are suffering under authoritarianism or or whatever they're suffering under, um, but also that we've we've essentially lost or at least uh, a lot of people who used to advocate this as a strategic issue have somehow you know forgotten that argument that um, we don't want people living under ISIS. Uh, we don't want uh, Christians being persecuted in Iran. We don't want people living under these situations. So, um, not only not only can we deprive uh, these these authoritarian regimes of their resources, but we gain a resource ourselves in the productivity of these people. And I mean, and the the data is very clear on this. So there was a report that actually was produced under the Trump administration analyzing the economic impact of the refugee program on the U.S. economy from I think 2004 to 2000. 2015, I want to say, uh, and it showed that the net the net economic impact of the refugee program was like plus 63 billion dollars or something. So uh, there's no question that in terms of economics, this is a benefit. There's no question that in terms of of uh, the refugees themselves, this is a benefit. So yeah, it is it is disappointing, and there has been a huge shift in the way um, people especially on the right, but just in general, have, have kind of shifted their attitude. When, when people used to show up uh, from Cuba, they just got to stay. We, we knew that people shouldn't be living under Castro. Um, somehow we've lost that. We don't have that same approach to people who are currently suffering under the Islamic State or any other authoritarian regime. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how that's, how that's changed over the years. You think as part of that... I guess demographic shifts and kind of cultural anxiety that it's it's one thing to be accepting of people who are different from you when people who are like you are the dominant majority. And so those these new people exist always on the periphery. But as as we tip closer and closer, like what is it in within the next decade or so, when I think white people become when, when whites become the non majority. I'm that not sure when, but it will be it's coming up coming up um, that that. Whites become more and more anxious about people who don't look like them, don't speak like them, have you know different belief systems, whatever else coming in. Well, I think so. Again, I would go back and and almost chuckle at at that in in compare in terms of um, relating that that viewpoint or conception of society to the actual tiny numbers of people that we're talking about. Like if if another twenty five thousand refugees is going to make the difference, then it's not uh, a voting. It's not a voting block, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean. uh, so I, I, yeah, it's. I'm not concerned. I don't no, no concern about the refugee voting block. I think would be very legitimate. I also think the more alienating and hostile we are, I, I mean, those are those are things that make it harder for people to assimilate and this is a this has become a problem in some places in Europe where the, you know they 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 take asylum seekers they take immigrants they take refugees but then they make it very difficult for them to work they make it difficult for them to to lead normal lives and assimilate we don't generally we don't do that in this country uh, we make it pretty easy for people to assimilate uh, and it would be a shame for for us to go the the wrong direction there I also think um, that 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 argument has always been there, right? That that argument about uh, demographics was, I mean, 
even when the the immigrants were majority white, when they were Irish or when they were Italians, they weren't considered white at the time. You know, we, we changed the definition of white after the fact. Um, but there's always been that argument. I don't know if, if, if either of you have been to the Ellis Island Museum in New York. So it, it's, a, it's, it's a great museum. And it's, there's, there's some subversive libertarian elements that I was surprised by. Like it's very powerful. So, some rooms that were uh, you know, celebrating people who helped turn people's coats inside out so they wouldn't see the marks on them or, or translators who intentionally mistranslated uh, so that people wouldn't be deported. Uh, but one of the rooms at the Ellis Island Museum is just a collection of basically nativist anti-immigrant cartoons and statements and things from the Know Nothing Party uh, over history. And I mean, just the most shocking thing in that room is that you know this. You've seen these arguments. You read them in the newspaper. You read them on Facebook. Um, so, I, I mean, fundamentally, the anti-immigrant uh, argument has not changed in 150 years. Um, and I, I don't think that position is any more legitimate now than it was then. Uh, I think they've I think that argument has 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 proven that it's not that it's not correct, that people don't have anything to worry about from these people. And insofar as we have data, I mean, the data backs up that that presumption. What can individual normal, so to speak, people because you're clearly not normal. I don't know. <laughs> like, like an individual people, people who aren't involved in policy are attorneys do to help refugees. So, uh, unlike some countries like Canada, there there really is no private sponsorship in in the United States. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff is happening at the political at the political and policy level where it it, it can seem inaccessible to people. But, I mean, people always have the normal routes of contacting their their legislators of. Uh, and especially because this is largely a federal issue. The, you know, the states don't have a lot to say. I mean, states can do things like provide in-state tuition for refugees. Um, they can they can make public statements and things like that. But in terms of what the law and the policy actually look like, so much of this is happening not just not at the state level, but happening thousands of miles away and happening in the White House. Um, it's tough. I, I mean, I think expressing support, I think getting uh, legislators involved, I think, um, you know, supporting organizations that, that are doing this work are probably the best things people can do. Uh, after the Muslim ban came down and you saw all the lawyers and people show up at the airports, uh, I mean, people got into the country who otherwise would not. I mean, people had their rights vindicated who otherwise would not have. Um, so I do think there's a place for, for direct action. But I think for the normal person who's not going to show up at Dulles at, at 2 in the morning, uh, yeah, I, I, I think just being a public advocate for this, for America's obligation, for, for human rights, I think, that's, uh, I think that's the best thing that people can do. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please rate and review us on iTunes. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.